My name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And uh, it's great to be together, isn't it? It's great to worship together. Um, I want you to cast your mind back to your childhood. To those moments when you come home from school and you're starving hungry. And you ask, as you come through the door, you say, Mum or Dad, whoever does the cooking in your home, you say, Mum, what's for dinner? And that awful moment when your mum looks at you and says, it's liver. <laughs> that awful moment. And you're like, oh no. Does anyone actually like eating liver? What's wrong with you? Seriously. My mom would wrap it in bacon to try and hide the flavor. I would unwrap the bacon, liver went in my pocket. And my mom would always, she'd say to me, look, this is part of a good, balanced, healthy diet. There's goodness in it. There's goodness in it, and you'd eat it like this. I'm not, does that actually do anything? I'm not sure it did. Oh, liver. So please turn to 1 Corinthians 11. This is all part of a balanced diet. There probably aren't many passages in the Bible I could read to you this morning that would provoke the kind of emotional response that this might. And one of the things the Apostle Paul said to the church in Ephesus as he was leaving, as he said to the church, when I was with you, I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Didn't shrink back. The implications of which being that there is a temptation sometimes to shrink back from aspects of the counsel of God, the word of God, the scriptures. That there's a temptation, if you like, to cherry pick and to just park certain texts. But because we're committed to being a healthy church, and we want to be strong in the word, and we want to be under God's word, and we want to be shaped by God's word. We want God's word not only to be that which has rescued us and saved us, but God's word which forms us, shapes us. We need to be comfortable with being uncomfortable sometimes. And I appreciate that there are going to be people here today and you're not a Christian, maybe. You're inquiring of the Christian faith or you're visiting a friend and they just pulled you to church today. And, uh, and you'll be questioning visiting that friend ever again after you hear this text. <laughs> but I do want to say to you, of course there is treasure here. There's, there, is, there is something for us to hear from God today, which is wonderful, glorious. And this passage of Scripture, this is given to the church, not to cause division, but to bring unity. Because there was division in the church. This passage was given that we might grow strong as God's people. That we might love the people that he's making us to become. 
And, and we've got a lot of baggage that we bring that's cultural, that's fed to us by the world around. And we're committed to being a church that's shaped by Scripture and by the Word of God. Amen? Amen. So shall we read it together? And, uh, and let's be in faith that God's going to speak to us. So actually starting in verse 2 of chapter 11, I'm going to read the whole chapter. It's a chapter of two sections. Let's read it together. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold fast to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man. And the man is the head of, every, of the woman. I just want to pause there. The word translated woman can also be translated wife. If you have an ESV version, it will say wife. We're reading from the CSB. The Greek word is gune, and it's used interchangeably for wife and woman, woman and wife. I would say wife would be the more helpful translation here. And God is the head of Christ. Every man who prays or prophesies with something on his head dishonors his head. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since that is one and the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman doesn't cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her head be covered." A man should not cover his head, because he is the image and glory of God. So too, woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman came from man. Neither was man created for the sake of woman, but woman for the sake of man. This is why a woman should have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. In the Lord, however... Woman is not independent of man, and man is not independent of woman. For just as woman came from man, so man comes through woman, and all things come from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? But that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to argue about this, we have no other custom, nor do the churches of God. Now, giving this instruction, I do not praise you. Since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. For to begin with, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it. Indeed, it is necessary that there be factions among you, so that those who are approved may be recognized among you. When you come together, then, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For, the, for at the meal, each one eats his own supper. So one person is hungry, while the other gets drunk. Don't you have homes in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I praise you? I do not praise you in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this 
in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself in this way. Let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many are sick and ill among you, and many have fallen asleep. If we were properly judging ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brothers and sisters... When you come together to eat, welcome one another. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home, so that when you gather together, you will not come under judgment. I'll give instructions about the other matters whenever I come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you're a God who speaks. You're not mute And your people are not deaf, but you've given us ears to hear you. And it is your voice, Lord, that we long to hear above all others, the voice of our shepherd, Lord Jesus, our good shepherd. We, your sheep, long to hear your voice. We love your voice. Your voice is tender. Your voice is full of authority. Your voice can cast out demons. Your voice can split rocks. Your voice can come in a whisper or like thunder. But today we ask, Lord, would you speak to us words of truth, words of freedom, words of comfort, words of strength. And would you build up and edify your people today. And Lord, may we grow in our love toward you and our love toward one another. Please help me, Lord, as I teach this passage. And please help us. May we know your presence. In Jesus' name, I ask. Amen. So we're going to start with the first section and then conclude with Paul's teaching on the Lord's Supper before we break bread together as we finish off later on. So firstly, honoring gender and marriage in the church, which is the emphasis of those verses from verse 2 through to verse 16. My wife and I have four children, one at senior school, Sky started at Henry Beaufort in September, and then we have three primary-aged kids who are at South Wanston Primary. The most stressful days in our household are non-uniform days. Any parents feel that stress ever, especially themed non-school uniform days. And you get an email through from the teacher saying, today is wear something luminous day. Like, have we got anything luminous? I'm not sure we've got anything luminous. Does hair color, can we color the hair? Does that count? Does that work? 
And the problem is that kids kind of conspire in the week with their friends, and they, they, they come, and they're like, such and such is wearing this, and, and she's wearing that, and he's wearing this, and I want to wear this, and I want to wear that. And we're just like, please, no more school, non-school uniform days, please. It's so stressful. And then the worst thing is to have those days when you're like, is it today? And you send your child in dressed like a clown, and you realize you got the date wrong. Sorry about that. That awkward moment when your kid's like horrified. Yes, that's happened to us. Not dressed up as a clown, but we have had those days when you miss it. The beauty of uniform is you don't have to think. You know what to wear. What we wear communicates something. And the best thing to wear is something which is, you know, you're oblivious to. I'm not sure many people would have noticed my shirt, particularly this morning. I've got a very bright beard, so I can't really wear bright colors. There's too much of a clash. Orange shirts won't work for me, so I go for dark colors. So what we wear communicates something, and generally we don't want what we're wearing to be much of a distraction, but there are certain countries and there are certain cultures where you wear clothes that communicate not just maybe something of your status in society, but your religion, the way you understand your gender, and you wear particular garments and particular clothes and they're required in a society, particularly in a shame and honor society, many Eastern societies are like that. Indeed, some of you may have been to countries before where you've had to dress differently in order to show honor and respect in that context. We don't live in one of those societies. Although over the ages, the issues being raised and addressed in this passage have been very pertinent to the church. And the principle that Paul establishes in this passage is very pertinent to the church always, anywhere, at any time, including us. The application of it, the application in terms of what do we actually go away and do, how does this affect how we behave and and interact with one another, that's going to change from context to context and from culture to culture. Paul begins by saying, now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold fast to the traditions. So it seems that the church in Corinth have, have written to Paul to raise a number of questions and that this particular issue that comes up is, is maybe one of those questions which has been raised concerning head coverings, whether men should, whether women are able not to. And Paul then proceeds to give a whole load of instructions on this particular question because this was causing division in the church and was causing problems. A surface read of this text rightly is problematic and challenging for us. We must approach God's word carefully, reverently. We must never dismiss it, and especially we must never dismiss it when it is most challenging. Because there is a reward for us to have in those moments. 
But of course, I recognize the personal responsibility. Andrew Wilson calls this text fiendishly difficult. So what we're not going to do is a, is a technical exegesis of each verse, which means to go through each word and each phrase and explain it and to offer the different interpretations of it. And actually, there are many. Rather, another technical word, we're going to do an exposition, which is to say, let's expose the meaning and the truth, the main message of this passage, and then let's apply it. Now, today I'm not rushing off to North. They're having a significant final Sunday service together over in Kingsworthy, and James is going to be bringing a word. So if you do want to ask me any questions, if you would like me to clear up anything that I haven't clarified sufficiently, I would, I would welcome that, and you can always email me as well. So what was happening here in Corinth? What was going on? Why is it that Paul is writing and needing to bring this correction? One of the things we've seen over the previous few chapters is how the idolatrous practices of wider Corinthian society were encroaching upon the church in Corinth. We've been looking at the issue of idol food, which has taken up three chapters up until this point. And we were finding that a lot of the practices in the idolatrous temples, uh, the church in Corinth was participating in. And, uh, and they were using an argument essentially concerning their spiritual freedom. We know that Jesus is the only God, and we know that he's saved and he's rescued us. We know that we're now free from sin, and we're free from um, striving to win God's approval. We've received approval in Christ, and they're right. But the problem was that the, the, the Corinthians were then interpreting this spiritual freedom in such a way that they, they, they stopped caring about the impact that their decisions and their lives were having on one another within the church and their witness to the society around it. Such that the church itself, far from being transformed from the surrounding worldly culture, was increasingly being conformed to it. So that you're not seeing much distinction between the people in the church in Corinth and the people in wider pagan society. It was all sinking. And it was a major problem. Because what is the point of the church if the church isn't distinct in many ways from the wider society? Now what makes us distinct as a church is not what we wear but it's who we worship. And what makes our words distinct is not that we use long, convoluted phrases, but that we speak Christ and we speak the gospel and we have a message of hope. But that message that we speak isn't just, uh, isn't just sounds and words, but it affects our hearts, our lives, our community so that we are changed so that the word of God says, don't be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. But the problem in Corinth was the opposite was happening. And there was a, a sinking of society. So the custom, the custom is this, so the tradition is this, that married women 
would wear head coverings as a sign, as a symbol of having a husband and being married. Now, that would have been probably the majority of the women in this church. In this day and age, women would be married anywhere between 12 and 14 years of age, generally. A betrothal. Very different to how marriage happens now. So if you are a woman, in this context, you are probably already married and you're probably wearing a head covering. Like I wear a wedding ring to show that I'm married, that was the sign and the symbol of being married. And what was happening was that many of the the women in this church were uncovering their heads and allowing their hair to flow down. And again, in this day and age, that was a shocking thing to do. It showed availability. It removed the sign of marriage. And the only place where you were seeing this type of thing happening was in the pagan temples among the prostitutes. And sometimes they would shave their hair off altogether. Not only that, but the the male prostitutes would grow their hair long. So you had this fluidity and this blending between the genders where the women appeared to dress like men and the men appeared to dress like women. And the Corinthian church was using their spiritual freedom to behave in this way also. And so that, as we've already seen, they've got the grace of God completely muddled. So the grace of God, which they clearly understood, meant my behavior and efforts and works don't contribute to my salvation. It's entirely God's gift, true. Therefore, I don't need to worry about my behavior and my conduct and what I wear and how I work. Wrong. (laughs) They're getting it wrong. No, your life is a witness to the truth of God's grace. As Paul says in Romans, do I carry on in sin that grace may abound? No, absolutely not. This grace has opened the door to relationship. You know Jesus now, and you're doing your life with Jesus, and that's amazing, right? That's changed you, hasn't it? So if it's changed you, and you're doing life with Jesus, and he's teaching you, if you're a man, be like Jesus. He's the best man and example of manhood to ever have walked the earth. Be like Jesus. you want to know what what does it mean to be a, a, what does manhood look like? Look to Jesus. And if you've been disappointed by examples of men in your life, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Look at how Jesus inspired women. Look at how Jesus empowered women. Look at how women flocked to Jesus. Including the most marginalized and shamed of society fell at his feet, adored him. Jesus is our example. And so this way of thinking had crept into the church. There was a blending. There was a sinking with society. They were abusing their spiritual freedoms. They were not witnessing to the gospel. They were not witnessing to this relationship that we've just been talking about. They were conforming. And the church across every age is constantly under pressure to do the same, to conform 
to the world around, to be like the world around. Who cares what you think about human sexuality? Who cares what you think about gender? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Don't talk about those things. We don't need to talk about those things. The church has been constantly under pressure to conform and to change and to blend and to give up God's word. Let me ask you, is the church in our nation today under similar pressure? It is. It is. And have churches in our nation today synchronized with the values of society and of the world? Tragically, they have. And now what's our responsibility? Do we just go, well, that's them. That's, that's not us. I think that's not our responsibility. I think we should pray and we should love where appropriate, we should challenge. We should hold the church accountable. We mustn't become isolationists and just independent. We should care about the ministry and the witness of the church, as Paul did the church here in Corinth. So that we celebrate what the Bible clearly teaches about human flourishing. And we're not nervous or anxious or shrinking back from teaching what the Bible has to say on matters concerning human sexuality and gender. Now, that said, that does not mean that we lose compassion and grace and love for people who think differently to us. And there may well be a number of people here, statistically there will be a number of people here who are battling and struggling with some of these issues in their lives. Maybe you, you're not clear on your gender. Maybe you don't um, feel confident to speak of yourself as a man or a woman. I hope you feel welcome in this church. And even though this topic is going to be difficult and painful for you, my hope and my sincere prayer is that beyond the ability I have with my words, the Spirit of God would witness to your heart and tell you that you're loved and precious and chosen and that God's got a plan for your life. Because there's not a single pe person in this room who hasn't had to deal with and isn't dealing with their issue of brokenness, hurt, and pain, whatever that might be. Now, this text is dealing with this live, tense subject. And it's not inappropriate that we feel the awkwardness of it. It's not inappropriate that we feel the awkwardness of it. Why? Why? Because the pinnacle moment in creation, the highlight, the mountain peak moment in creation was when God made man in God's image, male and female, he created them. In fact, the massive crescendo moment comes when Eve is made. Because humanity was incomplete until 
God made woman. Hallelujah. We are incomplete as men without women. And so God, having made Adam and having made Adam first, says, it's not, this is not good. First time we see that. It's not good. And Eve comes to be his helper. That is a, the Greek word is Ezra, most frequently used in the Bible to describe God. So Adam needs a helper. This has been twisted over the years to say that she's there just to serve him. No, 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 no. The man needed help. <laughs> he needed help. He needs a helper. He needs someone stronger and more capable and more able to come alongside and help. And she comes. And we find humanity made now in the image of God. Because there's something about masculinity that communicates something of what God is like. And there's something in femininity that communicates something of what God is like. Is God male? No. Is God female? No. But maleness and femaleness communicate something of what God is like. In a beautiful, wonderful, God-glorifying way. And so, may we never stop celebrating being male and female. May we recognize this is how God has made us. And there's something wonderful about it. But the pain and the difficulty that we have is a consequence of our disobedience and rejection of God's word. And so, yes, we can applaud being made in God's image, male and female, but we must also mourn how evil has deprived us from really living in the fullness and the wonder of that reality. Because there's not a single person here who's a man who's done, done it perfectly, or a woman who's done it perfectly. But the, the, the wonder of our gospel message is this. Not that we are being conformed back into this perfect picture of Genesis 2, male and female. Actually, the work of the gospel is taking us even further than that so that the word of God says we are being conformed into the image of his son so that we're being made to be like Jesus so that in Christ there is no longer male nor female, Jew nor Gentile. We're one. You have incredible, incomprehensible value. And deep down, I would say, deep down in every single person is this whispering voice which says, you are a treasure. You are like God, made to be like God. You are wonderful. You are uniquely made treasured and cherished by him. And if you don't believe that to be true, the grace of God is a power to help you understand it. Because I can't understand that without the help of God.
And I know there are going to be some of you here who struggle to see yourself like that. It's no wonder, is it, that Jesus loved to, to, to illustrate through miracles. And one of his most powerful ways he did that was to heal the blind person. And the blind man said, I was blind, but now I see. And I would say the most important seeing you and I need is to see truly who we are through the, through the lenses of the gospel, how God sees us. Because the world around us would say to you, you are who you say you are. Don't let anyone tell you who you are. You decide who you are. You say who you are. You tell everyone who you are. Okay, I need to discover who am I? Who is my true self? What, what am I? Who am I? Who, who is me? And because we know our own brokenness, we never quite find a way of being able to explain ourselves in a suitable way. And so we in the church, we sing, I am who you say I am. I am who you say I am. And I am a child of God. I'm a son. I'm a daughter. I'm adopted. I'm chosen. He's got a plan for my life. He loved me to the cross. I am who he says I am. Now, therefore, it matters that we When we gather, we don't dishonor, undermine, and compromise this beautiful aspect of what it means to be made in the image of God. In this instance, removing of the, of the head coverings, and for the men putting head coverings on, well, what's that all about? Well, in the, again, in these pagan temples, the priests would wear uh, togas, which were like head coverings. And it was a symbol, a status of wealth and power. And they would cover their heads as they went to pray and, and sacrifice. Suddenly the men were doing this in Corinth. Not only was this just nonsense, but it was also a kind of way of showing superiority and wealth, another massive issue. Hence, no, men, you uncover your heads. You don't do that. And women, you cover your heads because that's what the society teaches. It was linked to a society. It was not an issue that is across the ages. We know that to be true. Think of Samson. What did Samson have? Long, long hair. Think of the Nazarites. They grew their hair long. What about David's son, Absalom? He had long hair. His hair was so long, he got caught in a branch, and he was hanging there from his hair. The, the, the trick with this passage is that we have the principle, and the principle is we honor marriage, and we honor masculinity, and we honor femininity, and then we also have its application into this context, head coverings, not cutting hair, not shaving hair. Now, in this room today, we've got quite a few guys with hats on, and some women who've covered their hairs, and some who haven't, some with short hair, some with long hair. That's not the issue. So how do we apply this today? This is what Andrew Wilson says. Paul's teaching on head coverings 
is intended to preserve appropriate distinctions between the sexes so that men look like men and women look like women, and to avoid a sexually provocative or maritally inappropriate appearance in gathered worship. So how do we communicate those things in our culture? In some parts of the world, the answer would be to look very similar to that in Roman Corinth. Women would cover their heads and men would not. In much of the West today, it might look quite different. Men might have long hair and they would not prophesy in mascara and lipstick. Women need not look as if they've walked out of a Pride and Prejudice set, but they shouldn't look as if they've walked off the set of Love Island either. He says, you get the idea. We know there's an appropriate thing. There are appropriate garments and clothes for us to wear. But for us to honor marriage and honor women and honor men, that is something we've got to work hard on doing and celebrating and affirming how we talk about our, if we're married, how we talk about our husbands and our wives, how we talk about other men and how we talk about other women, how we affirm one another and celebrate one another's differences. And it's also worth noting that the women here in this church were prophesying and praying, right? So the contributions when the church gathers mustn't be just from men. We want to see the body represented. We want to see different gifts coming. And we must work hard to see that that happens and to encourage that. I just want to clarify again the verse which speaks about glory because that's quite a confusing verse. Again, I've got just a helpful quote from Andrew Wilson who explains it. It's in verse 7. Just look at that quickly with me. A man does not cover his head because he is the image of the glory of God. So too, woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman came from man. Now, that's a confusing verse. This is how Andrew explains it. Now, what Paul did not say, he does not say that men bear the image of God and women do not, or that men are superior and women are inferior. His comment that men are the glory of God while women are the glory of man has sometimes been taken that way, but it does not imply this at all. I have an apple tree in my garden, which produces apples, from which we make apple crumble. The crumble is the glory of the apple. It reflects its goodness in every way and brings honor to it, and the apple is the glory of the tree, and none of them are superior or inferior to the other two. Men and women bear God's image together and reflect God's glory on earth in different and complementary ways. Just a really helpful way of putting it. explaining that text. There's a lot in here which we're not going to have the opportunity to fully address and to unpack. But the key challenge to the church in Corinth is that you must not use your spiritual freedoms to cause offense to people that you are sent to reach with the good news of Jesus Christ. So if that means that you cover your heads, then you cover your heads. If that means that you don't cover your head, then you don't cover your head. But why would you want to cause offense to people that you're wanting to invite to meet Jesus when there is a broken, hurting world out there? We must look at ways in which we're able to embrace and love and bring the goodness and the grace of God to all. I want to finish now by just making some comments on the Lord's Supper. This, this was a big problem for the church in Corinth. This was a big problem. Like he starts the previous passage by saying, hey, now I praise you because you're seeking my help on these issues and you're seeking to continue the traditions. 
In contrast, he says, but on this subject, I do not praise you. When it comes to this subject, you know, every now and then, I don't know if, if you ever do this in your car as you drive away from church, every now and then as we drive away, we go, not oh, a great time today, was it? Struggled with this or struggled with that. Is it just me? Or like, do you ever do that? Like, we do that sometimes. Very rarely in this church, I'm sure. Very rarely. What were the songs? Or why didn't we do this or do that? I've never driven away going, oh my word, we are being damaged. But Paul is saying, you are being damaged. You are damaging yourselves. Your meetings are for the worse, not for the better. You're harming yourself. And then we have this ridiculous picture of, of the Lord's Supper. And bear in mind how we're doing it is not exactly how it was being done back in Corinth, where you'd gather in a courtyard, someone's house, and you'd eat a meal. But what was happening was where it should be a place of fellowship, of breaking bread together, of people bringing and sharing and eating, what was happening was the rich were coming with their feast and they were shoveling it down their throats and they were downing all the wine so that the, the wealthy were completely intoxicated and the poor were picking up the crumbs. So this meal, which should have been a picture of the unity and the togetherness of the church, was actually a picture of division and inequality and damage. And Paul's like, it's the very opposite. He said, this is what I taught you. Jesus, on the final night with his disciples, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body and the cup. This is my blood. And he, and he, and he said, do this in remembrance of me. Commanded them. Imagine the atmosphere in that upper room as Jesus is knowing he's about to be crucified. That, that atmosphere, the intensity of that atmosphere do this in remembrance of me. And isn't it interesting that Jesus gives the church a command to worship in a particular way that doesn't emphasize or remember so much his resurrection or his ascension or his glorification, but his death. Right? His resurrection is glorious. His glorification is glorious. These things are glorious. But he says, remember my death. Remember my crucifixion. Do this in remembrance of me. And Paul says, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There's a day when Jesus comes when we don't proclaim his death anymore. Because death ends. There's a day when he returns gloriously. But until that day, we must proclaim his death for two reasons. It's how we're saved from our sin. And it's how we grow strong. So you think, you think about the bread and the wine. As you eat it, as you eat the bread, your body breaks down the carbohydrates and the sugars. And through the digestive process, that bread is added to your body. And you're strengthened by it. And the wine similarly. There is a spiritual reality that when you take the bread and the wine, the power of the Spirit feeds your soul and strengthens your soul and nourishes your soul so that you're strengthened by this meal. 
because the Spirit applies to our spirits the atoning work of Jesus Christ. So that Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. You must eat my flesh and you must drink my blood. And it's mysterious and it's strange. But, but it's a work of the Spirit of God. So we're about to have communion now. And Paul says you've got to examine yourself when you take the bread and the wine. Because the church in Corinth wasn't examining itself and wasn't taking this seriously and was sinning all over it. And he's like, do you know what? Some of you are dying as a direct consequence of this. That's how serious it is. So we examine ourselves when we come to the table. What does that mean? It means that I go before God and I say, Lord, I just ask for your forgiveness. I confess my sin to you. We also think, is there someone in this room or is there someone that I'm harboring bitterness and unforgiveness towards? I need to deal with that as well. Because this is a place where we gather together. Charles Spurgeon, the great 19th century preacher, famously said this. The moments we're closest to heaven are those we spend at the Lord's table. As God's redeemed, chosen, loved people. That's what's happening here today. Calvin said it's a spiritual feast. I don't want us just to go through the motions when we break bread together. Don't just go through the motions. This is a moment for you to encounter the presence and the power of God. This is a moment where the Holy Spirit himself is going to feed us and strengthen us and apply Christ's work to our hearts. That's our confidence. So if you're a Christian here today, you've made a confession of faith in Jesus, this meal is for you and it's for us. By God's grace, I do believe that he is safeguarding and protecting us against a lot of these issues. But let us not presume upon them. We've got to keep teaching this stuff and challenging one another with it and helping one another with it. I'm going to invite the band to come. Why don't we stand? we sing a song and then I'll ask Steve just to come and lead us into communion. I want to just pray over us. And I want to speak to you particularly on the issues which we were looking at earlier on. And I just, I just want to pray for you. Father, I just ask now that you would bring healing to us. Whatever that healing is, whatever we need, please come and would you do that. I thank you that your word says, by his stripes... We have been healed. Healing for us is found in the death of Jesus Christ. Healing for us. True healing. Ultimately of our bodies. But healing right now can be found as we look to Jesus. And we look to him suffering on our behalf. Lord Jesus, what an example you are to the world. Of what being a godly man looks like. I pray over us men in the room, Lord, help us to be like you. I pray over the women in this room, help them to be like you. I thank you one day we will all be perfectly like you. Help us to respect and honor one another. Help us to esteem marriage. Help us to be compassionate towards those whose marriages haven't worked. 
Help this to be a place where people of different backgrounds and different challenges in life find hope and healing and comfort. Lord, I just pray, communicate to our hearts right now and strengthen us as we break bread and as we drink the wine together that we would glorify you. Lord, help us, we pray.